Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of the New Books and Anthropology podcast. I'm your host, Jared Miracle. And if you're new to the program, our premise is simple. When new books are released of a scholarly interest to anthropologists, anthropology students, or those who simply like good listening, we interview the authors whenever possible to find out more about the material in the book and give you a sense of whether or not you would like to read it. Our guest today is Dr. Peter Hempenstall. He is Professor Emeritus from University of Canterbury in New Zealand and is currently a conjoint professor of history at the University of Newcastle in Australia. He's joining us all the way from Australia, so we were able to work out some of the time difference. He's also primarily written about biography, some about nationalism. Uh, we're going to get into all of that. So, Dr. Hemmetstahl, welcome to the program. Thank you, Joe. Pleased to be here. Now, of course, the question for the listener is, why are we interviewing an historian on the Anthropology Podcast? But your new book is fascinating. It's called Truth's Fool, Derek Freeman and the War Over Cultural Anthropology. This is about the debate between Derek Freeman and Margaret Mead. Well, it's a little bit about a little bit more than the debate, uh, Jared, but it's certainly about 40% of the book probably covers the Mead debate because no historian has as yet researched the labyrinthine ins and outs of that debate, which took place when, uh, from the time Derek Freeman published his first book, Margaret Mead, the Ansar Moore, in 1983 to about uh, the, the late 1990s. And so I've written a book which not only deals with the, the Mead debate uh, in, in detail, but tries to explain who Derek Freeman was himself, because, of course, he has pretty much been vilified as a perpetrator and a villain uh, by uh, many anthropologists, particularly, I have to say, in the United States, and not taken very seriously, uh, either as a, as a thinker or, or really as a human being. In fact, he's even been accused of being mad in some of the attacks that he made on uh, colleagues and the way in which he tried to defend his position. So I've written a book which isn't a defence of Derek Freeman. It's, it's an explanation, I suppose, of, of who this complex human being was. I, I guess... My starting point was to take the man seriously, not to identify with him, but to take him seriously as a thinker and as an anthropologist and as a complex human being who wasn't just a monstrous gargoyle of the kind that he's been painted in much of the literature, but a man of many parts uh, with a rich and complicated backstory that has to be taken into account in any understanding of what he has tried to do. Now, of course, as an American-educated anthropologist, I, I took great interest in finding out about this publication. And by the way, for the listener, it's available from uh, University of Wisconsin Press. So there is a stateside publication going on. And during my own education, I always found it a little odd that we talked about Derek Freeman briefly, but didn't discuss uh, what his assertions were, what his background was. 
or his relationship with the Samoans in general. I, I always found that a bit odd. Yes, indeed. Uh, I agree. Uh, most of the oxygen has been taken up by the uh, furor of the debate over his first book, Margaret Mead and Samoa. This book in 1983, uh, which was uh, reported on the front page of the New York Times in January 1983, that's what really created the furor to begin with. It, it I suppose, wrong-footed the American anthropology profession because the book wasn't widely available at the time and very few had read it. Nevertheless, anthropologists tend to leap to the barricades to condemn Freeman and the book because he was accused of uh, carrying out a vendetta against Margaret Mead um, and, of course, raising all the old questions about nature versus nurture, which was, I suppose, part of the continuing culture wars in America, particularly during the Reagan years in the 1980s, with racism always hanging in the air. The book itself was a formal structured refutation of Mead's conclusions in her best-selling book, Coming of Age in Samoa, which of course was published as far back as 1928. It was a highly influential book throughout uh, higher education and indeed school education uh, in the United States. Mead's argument in that little book was that adolescence in Samoa was a much more relaxed time of growth and sexual freedom than was the case in America and was therefore proof that cultural conditioning and not some universal human nature lay at the root of stages of growth in human societies. Mead, of course, became a celebrated public figure, an advocate of progressive social and educational reform, uh, the mother of the world, according to Time magazine in 1969. Whereas Derek Freeman argued that Mead's picture of sexual freedom among Samoan youth was a myth, that it was propagated as a result of leading instructions from her supervisor, the great father of American anthropology, Franz Boas, and that he said coming of age was full of scientific inaccuracies because Mead had only spent a short stay in the islands. She was unfamiliar with the language and village life. Uh, and uh, he, he uh, criticised both her methodology and her conclusions. Uh, and in, the, in doing so, he substituted his own much darker picture of Samoan society based on several years of study in the islands. He was himself uh, a title holder. He had a chiefly title which had been uh, accorded to him by Samoans. And, of course, he was a fluent Samoan speaker. So those two things, I think, the, the attack on, on Mead and uh, his very negative dark picture of Samoan society uh, were the things that... Uh, sparked provocation and a lot of anger and a pushback from American anthropologists. Given Freeman's reputation locally uh, within Australia and Pacific higher education in general, what do you make of the assertions that he had some kind of uh, uh, vendetta against Mead's work versus simply being more scientific about it? Well, uh, that's exactly the, the, the argument or the issue that I've uh, tried to assess in some detail in my book. My uh, view is that he didn't have a vendetta against me. He, he was a, an, ext 
extremely puritanical and, and moral thinker, uh, and he was disturbed by what he felt uh, Meade was saying about this highly puritanical and uh, very disciplined society in Samoa. Uh, and um, he gradually grew into uh, a recognition that her book of 1928 was wrong in so many of its assumptions uh, and uh, so many of the, uh, the conclusions that she drew from the research that she was able to do there in a very short time. And my argument is that this mission of refuting Mead, which his detractors say he carried with him ever since he had been in Samoa during the 1940s, during the Second World War, and that he had uh, taken basically 40 years uh, to put the knife into Mark Mead, I argue that in fact there's a much more complex process of growth in Freeman's life and biography from the 1940s right through to the 1980s, that the Mead mission came upon him slowly uh, amongst other missions that he was uh, also engaged on. Of course, uh, Freeman made his name not on Samoa at all, but on uh, his the ethnographic work that he did among the Iban, the river Dayaks, uh, the headhunters of Borneo during the 1950s, where he did his PhD research. And his work on the Iban is is even today considered to be, if you like, the gold standard of ethnographic and anthropological observation on that uh, group of people. So he already had a had a reputation in that area. He was prosecuting that mission at the same time that he was building up research on Mead and also uh, undergoing psychoanalysis on himself because the other mission to the side of uh, this refutation of Margaret Mead was to rethink anthropology into a much more behavioural kind of human science away from the cultural determinism that he felt Mead and her colleagues uh, had uh, propagated uh, uh, in America. So the, the mission was very much to, uh, if you like, reinvent anthropology and to create uh, what he called an interactionist anthropology between biological and behavioural drivers and cultural drivers, which would uh, make anthropology into a, a true human science. And speaking of cultural determinism, there has long been the assertion that, in fact, what Margaret Mead wrote was perhaps less truly directly about Samoan culture and more simply a response to American culture at that time. I think that's absolutely right, Jared. And in fact, this is one of the things that Derek Freeman got wrong. He never really, I think, recognized the, what that book was for and who it was really for. Uh, and I don't think he ever dealt uh, clearly enough with the importance of Mead as a public intellectual and as an icon of public culture for American society. And this is one of the great criticisms uh, that anthropologists uh, made against him. And I think they were absolutely right. Another of the criticisms they brought against him, and, and occasionally I, I was able to dig up a paper as recently as 2013 asserting this, that Freeman primarily based his criticism of Mead's work on uh, only a handful of interviews with an elderly woman he located who had been one of the young girls Mead interviewed. Um, and that, in fact, it would be uh, nearly impossible, 
as a, as a prodigious use of long-term memory for such an individual to remember things like uh, specific conversations with Margaret Mead that happened, what, some 60 years prior. To what extent do you think that might be overblown, or is that an accurate portrayal? Well, look, as in so many uh, issues of historical significance, it's, it's both overblown and it's partially correct. One must remember that, that Derek Freeman wrote two books about Samoa. The first one, uh, Margaret Mead and Samoa, which was the reputation I mentioned before. The second one was the fateful hoaxing of Margaret Mead, in which this argument was propounded that, in fact, she had been misled by the recreational lying of uh, particularly uh, two Samoan um, women uh, who've been her close companions in one of her research trips to the outer islands. Um, it was always a gamble on Freeman's part to place too much stress on the relationship between Margaret Mead and these two Samoan women and to argue that she'd been hoaxed. Uh, and that is the brunt, if you like, of the second book. On the other hand, from a historian's point of view, I actually find The Fateful Hoaxing of Margaret Mead a, a much better book than his earlier refutation, uh, in that it is a very sophisticated and I think uh, sympathetic portrayal of Margaret Mead's journey to the Samoan Islands and what she was trying to achieve and how she went about it, where she failed, but where she also succeeded, and how she got herself mixed up with these young women uh, who allegedly led her astray. I find that book very well written, very well researched, uh, and uh, quite uh, persuasive in its overall argument about Margaret Mead's agenda and, and perhaps some of the flaws in her research. But the actual argument about the hoaxing, uh, I think, has been pretty well uh, re um, debated and uh, refuted by a number of anthropologists uh, over, over the years. And, and I think Freeman did himself no service by hooking his whole uh, argument on that particular argument. I mean, one of, the, one of the problems with Derek Freeman was that he had an obsessive personality. Uh, he wasn't able to let the Mead debate go at a point when he should have probably after his first book, uh, and he, he kept searching around for other weapons that he could use in his uh, continued mission to show that Margaret Mead's early researches were, were in fact shoddy and wrong. Now, taking a, taking a step back from the argument itself and, and uh, their mutually respected research, you mentioned coming at this as an as an historian, and that's primarily your your academic area. How did you come to uh, study this fascinating chapter in in global anthropology? What drew your interest, and uh, what materials did you end up using? Because I think everyone is, at least all of our listeners, would would know fairly well that historical research is going to rely heavily on having the proper materials. Well, there's, a, there's an entire backstory there too, Jared. Uh, let me fill you in very quickly on it. As I said, I, I'm an historian of the Imperial Age in the Pacific, 
and Samoa was one of my primary research areas where I did field work in the 1970s. I studied anthropology myself as an undergraduate, but did my postgraduate work uh, primarily in, in history of the Pacific. So I was familiar with Samoa. I was familiar with Derek Freeman's work on Samoa because he was considered the great guru uh, during the 1970s uh, on that that area. I read the, the Mead debates, of course, and I used it in my own teaching. But during that whole time, I tended to avoid having anything to do with Derek Freeman. Uh, quite frankly, he scared the, the, the living daylights out of me, as he did a lot of people, because he was such a powerful intellect, intellectual, uh, such seemingly such a, a severe judge of those who might be working particularly on Samoa that I pretty well kept out of his way and managed to stay out of his way virtually my entire career. Then in 1998, when I moved to New Zealand uh, to the History Department at Canterbury University, I took up a project with uh, colleagues there, which was, as I say, uh, examining the shared cultural histories of Australia and New Zealand. And we were looking at the movement of intellectuals and thinkers between Australia and New Zealand, trying to figure out what impact they had had on those societies. And that's when I thought, aha, Derek Freeman's a good example. I'll write off to him and see if I could get his permission to write a small biographical essay on him for this book. Well, he, he replied immediately and very generously and said, yes, look, in fact, why don't you come and talk about doing a biography of me, which I thought was an extraordinary and generous offer. In the meantime, unfortunately, he died. Uh, this is in July of 2001. And the family then put me on to uh, the anthropologist Don Tuzan, who was a professor at the University of California in San Diego, one of Derek Freeman's students, a very uh, the dean, if you like, of Melanesian studies, a, a great Melanesianist. Um, and he was a man who always thought that the discipline of anthropology hadn't taken Derek Freeman seriously, that he had serious things to say to anthropology, which the discipline didn't want to hear. And he's begun his own intellectual biographical research on, on uh, Freeman from the point of view of a person who was almost like a surrogate son of the family. Uh, well, uh, when Don and I met, uh, we soon agreed that, in fact, this was a project born for both of us, really, and that why didn't we collaborate and write a book together? He, the anthropologist, providing the, the powerful uh, history and anthropology uh, context, and me, the historian and biographer. Uh, it was going beautifully until 2007 when, tragically, Don died uh, at the age of 61, 62 from... Hodgkin's uh, lymphoma, the effects of Hodgkin's lymphoma. And that, of course, left the project in my hands. I had to renegotiate it with the family who were uncomfortable with this virtual stranger taking over a book on uh, their father, his daughters, and his wife was still uh, alive at that point. Uh, they were nervous because of Derek's reputation in anthropology. They knew that it was um, a highly critical area of study and that uh, people would be gunning for Derek Freeman, probably for the authors who would dare to write about him as well. Uh, and so um, uh, I did interviews with as many of the family and as many of his colleagues as I could find. And most of them had retired and some had already passed away by that stage. But the real find was, of course, the 200 boxes of Derek's papers that lay in splendor in the University of California San Diego Library, the Geisel Library. Uh, 
were the papers of uh, Theodore Geisel, the author of the Dr. Seuss books, also live. And there's a certain irony, but also a symmetry there, I think. Uh, so there was lots of work. I mean, Freeman was a, a, an inveterate collector. Uh, he kept everything and copies of everything that was ever sent to him, all his correspondence, the copies of papers, his research notes, photographs, you name it, everything was there. On top of that, uh, he, from the 1960s onwards, when he went into psychoanalysis, he kept a daily diary, which he wrote in large uh, A4 books, A4-sized books, every single day of his life. He, it, they weren't terribly reflective diaries, but they were, if you like, log books of his daily activities, the stuff that he'd re been reading, the conclusions he'd come to uh, in his intellectual life, and the occasional, the occasional introspective comment about uh, the struggles he had with himself to, to improve his relationships uh, with people. Now, the family was reluctant for me to use these diaries in detail, and I could understand that. They wanted to ring fence off that particular area, uh, which was uh, very personal uh, and uh, very emotional uh, to them as well. But they did allow me to have a look at the summaries of the diaries that Don Tuzan had been drawing up for himself and for our joint project in the years before he died. So armed with the, 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 uh, the wonderful uh, summaries of these diaries, some of which were verbatim uh, extracts and quotations, and of course this vast uh, uh, number of papers in San Diego, plus the interviews that I, I was doing, plus of course all the literature in the anthropology magazines and journals, and the books about Margaret Mead and the debate and so forth and so on. I had... I had more material than you can poke a stick at, as we should say in Australia, in terms of dealing with the life of, uh, of Derek Freeman. And so I dug right into the beginnings of his story, when he was born, where he grew up in New Zealand, and I've traced that whole picture of childhood, his childhood memories, his childhood education, upbringing, his university education, uh, his young man's adventures, his travels to Samoa as a teacher, uh, his, his work as, a, a, as a, a warrior, hardly a warrior, but as a, as a member of the, uh, the New Zealand Naval Forces during the Second World War, and so forth and so on, his induction into anthropology. So there's an entire intellectual and biographical history based, I think, on a very wide set of papers, wider than any I have to say, any of the anthropologists have dealt with who have um, invested their own considerable uh, energy and intellectual uh, acumen into the debate. As an archivist with something of a biographical bent, I, I am finding it difficult to contain my envy. <laughs> it was a terrific project. It was really a terrific project to have. And I have to say that the people at the University of California in San Diego were uh, extraordinarily supportive of, of uh, things and, and were a major asset in getting the book to market. That, that really is quite extraordinary. You mentioned that the project had its genesis as part of a, a larger work looking at the shared history between New Zealand and Australia. Could you give us some idea of, of how that lays the context and background for 
uh, Derek Freeman's career and his relationship with Margaret Mead? Well, in, in a funny sort of way, it, it doesn't. I mean, that, that book that started me going on Derek Freeman, uh, as often, books often do, took a slightly different uh, trajectory once we've begun it. I, I uh, authored it with a, a number of uh, two two colleagues at the University of Canterbury, Philippa Main-Smith and uh, Sean Goldfinch, a historian uh, and a political scientist. And it became a book called Remaking the Tasman World, which was an examination of uh, this strange symbiotic relationship that Australia and New Zealand have with one another, whereby they, they are constantly... Uh, mocking one another, but we're, even though we are basically cousins of the same British Empire, if you like, uh, we are constantly at, at each other's throats in sporting terms, in, in politics, in, in, often in economics as well. And our book was designed to peel back the layers of that uh, sometimes acrimonious relationship and show how many things we actually shared in common. That was how I got into to, uh, Derek Freeman. Uh, but, of course, um, he, even though he was born in New Zealand and was educated in New Zealand, he left New Zealand in the 1940s to go off to war. And then when the war was ended, he went off to the University of London to do his PhD research. And he only ever briefly returned to New Zealand as a, uh, a lecturer in anthropology, actually, uh, at the University of Otago in, in Dunedin, where he worked with the uh, ethnographer H.D. Skinner at the museum there. But he was very soon called from Otago to become uh, a research fellow at the new Australian National University in Canberra, which had just begun after the Second World War, and which had drawn uh, a stellar list of academic and intellectual forces from around the world to create a pure research institute. And so uh, Freeman left uh, or spent the rest of his life really in Canberra, although, of course, he visited New Zealand. He, he still had family in New Zealand. Um, he loved New Zealand. He and his wife planted New Zealand plants in their garden in Canberra. He always wanted to go back to, to New Zealand. Um, he was a great mountain climber in New Zealand. In fact, he fell off a mountain in 1938 along with two colleagues. This is one of the stories I tell in the book. He was such a, uh, a serious and an avid mountain climber that they climbed one of the highest peaks in the Southern Alps in the South Island of New Zealand, fell down a glacier broke together a couple of hundred feet. Um, one of them was killed in the accident and uh, Freeman had to leave his body behind and carry his colleague off the mountain um, to, to, to safety. So, you know, he was a man of extraordinary adventurousness who uh, had all sorts of things happen to him over, over the years. His New Zealandness never left him. And I have to say it was one of the, I think, unkind and unfair accusations made by uh, certain American anthropologists that his whole approach to the Margaret Mead affair re reflected a kind of puritanical, old-fashioned morality which he must have picked up from his Presbyterian background in New Zealand. And my book sets out to show that that's really um, a very superficial way of understanding who this complex human being was. That has always struck me as something of an ad hominem attack 
um, and and not terribly well supported. There's been a lot of that, but I have to say, uh, Freeman gave as good as he got. In fact, it was giving as good as he got that got him into so much trouble. Um, one of the uh, arguments I make in my book is that the language of the debates that followed the publication of his two books is very different from the language of the books themselves, and you have to distinguish between what I think were very well-mannered and well-argued and courteous books uh, that Freeman wrote and the, the language of the discourse that took place in anthropology journals and occasionally in, in newspaper journals and magazines, uh, which was much more vindictive, much more emotional uh, on both sides. But Freeman, again, did himself no favours by uh, continuing to keep uh, the, the momentum of the debate going in refusing to make any compromises, in uh, using ridiculing a ridiculing tone in, in his correspondence with his detractors and, and gradually, you know, generally getting everybody offside um, in, in following uh, the line of argument that he was absolutely certain he had got right. In terms of intellectual history, then, how do you feel Derek Freeman should be remembered now that anthropology is globalized and we have a, a, a more of a shared, less regionalized uh, area of study? Well, I think he's, a, he's, he's an important part of the history of anthropology, particularly in terms of its British roots in British social anthropology, in which he was trained, <coughs> excuse me, and the attempts he made to reinvent that social anthropology tradition and create this new interactionist model. I think he's important uh, in, in that regard. I don't think the ideas that he had in, in that direction had advanced far enough to be able to say he is a crucial figure. He, he was probably ahead of the curve in terms of this uh, appreciation of behaviour and genetic factors uh, in the 1960s. But because he was doing so many other things and became obsessed with the Margaret Mead affair, uh, he fell behind in, in, in that area. He was never the, the, the racist or the sociobiologist that some uh, figures in anthropology accused him of. In fact, he was uh, a, a, a very decided opponent of, of racism and wrote a very influential article in the National Montague book in 1980 refuting the work of people like E.O. Wilson and uh, other sociobiologists. So he didn't get that far with that particular uh, intellectual trajectory, although I think he was an important figure in its early days. As uh, for his, his other anthropological gifts, he remained a superb ethnographer of Borneo and of the Iban people. And the, one of the great tragedies of his career is that he became so obsessed by the Mead thing, he never completed the great study of the, uh, of the religious uh, uh, and ceremonial the life of the Iban that he had promised himself to do, although he'd written a number of earlier studies on, on the Iban, which are still very well respected. As for his Samoa work, um, well, that's, that's harder to judge. Um, 
I've talked to uh, anthropologists, particularly anthropologists who know Samoa well, both in the United States and here in the Antipodes, who say um, it's a great failure uh, on Freeman's part that he never wrote the great counter-ethnography to Margaret Mead that um, they claimed he should have, that, that the, the first book should have been a, a proper counter if you like, counter-image of Samoa to the one that Margaret Mead had perpetrated in the 1920s. If anybody had been in a position to write the best account of historical and cultural change in the Samoan islands from, say, the 1920s through to the 1960s, uh, it was Derek Freeman. Uh, and the great tragedy of his Samoan work is that he allowed himself to be... Uh, distracted uh, and obsessed by the Mead refutation and he never put together the the great work on Samoa that I think would have carved his name in much more um, flattering light than has been the case uh, up to now. As an educator, that is the primary reason why I've been excited about your book because I always wanted to have students read Coming of Age in Samoa and then a, a counter discussion uh, to, if nothing else, show the change over time as the, uh, as the Samoan people have been westernized and exposed to a broader global culture, but also the, the inherent cultural change that's going to happen as people age and generations change out. So the idea that your book is offering us something of a, of a step back, of a, of a broader glance at how this all fits together uh, without necessarily having a personal dog in the fight I, f I find it a, a, uh, a very exciting concept as, uh, as a teacher. Thank you, Joe. Well, I hope other people will see the same. Uh, I think it's very important to be able to step back from this man who has created such, so much emotion and, and caused uh, so many stories, half-truths and, and outright falsehoods uh, to be spread. Uh, but also uh, truths about his uh, demanding personality. But a demanding personality doesn't mean to say that uh, it shouldn't be at least explained and respected for what the person was trying to do. And, of course, the other side of Derek Freeman that I haven't really mentioned is that the diaries that I was able to, whose excerpts I was able to see, showed that he spent most of his adult life struggling to improve his relationships with others, struggling against himself, if you like, struggling to be better than himself. Uh, and as well as undergoing psychoanalysis, he read fervently into all sorts of areas of self-improvement and philosophy, uh, and even to an extent in, in theology, to try and better himself and to understand where he was coming from. There is the question uh, that has been raised whether Freeman was mentally unstable, that accusation has been made in print by a number of people based on a number of uh, incidents in his life where it seems to me he did suffer uh, from mild psychotic episodes. But it was only in the 1970s that Freeman was diagnosed with the bipolar condition. Now, that was a condition that was hardly known in the 1970s. In fact, I think it was in America that it was first discovered and, um, and there was very little treatment for it at the time. 
even today we don't understand all that much. But it's quite clear that he suffered, uh, he was bipolar, and that he suffered manic phases as well as uh, depressive phases. And he struggled his entire life to, if you like, write the right himself, to, to bring himself back to the perpendicular from the kind of uh, upset and disruptive uh, condition that, that he suffered from. So there's a, there's a rich and complex human being behind the gargoyle, if you like, and I hope that my book uh, will be seen at least in, as being fair to the man without uh, identifying with him. Uh, and being fair to the history of anthropology uh, and his place in it as well. I certainly find, and uh, I, I think the readers would find that the tone is not only respectful, but rather comprehensive and gives uh, a great deal of, of new light on all of the discussion that has long taken place in a debate that really should have uh, wrapped up at this point. Um, do you have any other... Uh, any other asks, any other tales from the writing of the book that you'd like to convey to our audience? I think I've pretty much exactly uh, exhausted my armory there, Jared, um, except I agree to, to agree with you. The debate has gone on long enough and it will be interesting to see uh, in about a year's time when the academic reviews of my book begin to reach, come out in the anthropology journals, uh, how particularly American anthropologists, uh, have reacted to, uh, to the case. Um, the University of Wisconsin has done a, a marvellous job in pro producing an extraordinarily handsome uh, book uh, on Freeman, and it goes together with other works that they've done. Of course, they've got a, a, a terrific reputation in the history of anthropology, and there's another book by Paul Shankman called The Trashing of Margaret Mead, which is, in a sense, is almost a companion, an earlier companion volume to mine, which uh, in many ways gives the other side of the argument as well. Um, I would hope that uh, people who are interested in the, in the Freeman story would read both books and, and think carefully about uh, the issues involved. Excellent. I, I think we can all do with a bit more reading about the history of our own discipline. And this is certainly going to be an important contribution to that. Uh, so thank you for that. And thank you for having us, uh, uh, joining us on the show. All right. That was Peter Hempenstahl joining us on the New Books and Anthropology podcast. His new book, Truth's Fool, Derek Freeman and the War Over Cultural Anthropology is available right now from the University of Wisconsin Press. And if you would like to support the New Books Network, please visit us at newbooksnetwork.com and consider making a contribution or joining us in our online discussions. Any support that you can provide the channel is always greatly appreciated. My name is Jared Miracle, and thank you for joining us. 